So open your Bibles. Um, we don't have the scripture on the screen today because we're going to be moving through several passages. Uh, but open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to First um, Samuel chapter eight. And this morning we are not in the book of Luke again because we are discussing something that I promised you we would talk about before the November, the presidential election in November. Is it November 8th? November 8th. Um, November 8th is the big day. Uh, As a nation, we will vote for a new president. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit this morning about how we should think about the election, politics, but most importantly, how we can honor God at the ballot box this November. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, um, <clears throat> recently I was sharing with a friend uh, that I would be preaching a sermon on the election. And he said, cool. Uh, I know you'll go- do a good job because uh, you won't patronize your people by saying, it doesn't matter who gets elected because God is in control. To which I responded with a nervous laugh, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do that. And as he walked away, <laughs> I said, scratch that idea. Because that's really, you know, kind of like what you want to say to people is, well, it doesn't matter. You know, when you know, like, all hope is lost, right? It doesn't matter. God is in control, and we should just be content and happy to know that God is in control of all things. And he is. But um, my sermon this morning is going to explore uh, a little bit of um, what the land, political landscape is in front of us and how we should think. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me, give me one moment here. I lost my, my place in, my, in our text this morning. Uh, let's start in verse 8. Um, let's start in verse 4 of First Samuel 8, excuse me. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, Only you shall solemnly warn them 
and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Let's pray. Father, now we We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We pray, O God, that you would guide us through this message this morning. We pray, Lord, that what is spoken and what is heard is not the words of men, but of God. Convict us and convince us of what you would have us to know. And Lord, we pray for the unction of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this in us, that we would leave differently than the way we came in this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Well, if you've ever read that passage that we just read in 1 Samuel 8, can I just, as a show of hands, ask who's familiar has read that passage before? Yeah, a lot of people. Some have, some haven't. But essentially, um, Israel was perfectly fine in God's mind without a supreme ruler up until this time. Israel, in its ideal situation was a loose confederation of tribes that had a common language and a common religion governed by judges who were to serve as ideal Israelites. And they were protectors. They protected life and property, and they punished evildoers. And in the case of external threats, these judges, these rulers of Israel, these Um, these kind of temporal rulers of Israel would form and rally a military force to repel invasion and purge idolatry from the land. Now, all that changed when the people who desired to be like the other nations demanded to have a king. Before that, well, God was king. And just as a quick aside... What the reign of Jesus Christ is all about is God re-establishing his kingship over the earth. So God was king. Um, And if you pay close attention to the passage, you'll notice that Saul institutes about a half a dozen things. Military, Military conscription. He will increase the size of government, it says, He will create a massive industrial military complex. He will misallocate national resources. 
He will inordinately raise taxes to benefit him and his cronies. He will favor special interests over the welfare of the populace. And his policies will be uh, oppressive and unfair to its poorest citizens. Now, one thing we shouldn't miss is that this isn't just a description of what Saul would do as king, but in a real sense, this is how rulers behave generally. The Bible is suspicious of monarchs, of rulers, of those in power, and for good reason. But what does God do to remedy the abuses of Saul? Well, he could have dismantled, after Saul's leadership, the office of king altogether and said to the people, see, I told you, now let's go back to the way things were. But he doesn't do that. What he does is he answers the wicked reign of Saul with a righteous ruler, David a man after God's very own heart. Because it isn't the office that's evil, but the leaders in office who don't acknowledge the Lord. Right? You know the story of Saul. He was handsome, he was good-looking, he was tall, he was head and shoulders above the rest, and he looked like a king, and he, he, was, you know, he looked like a ruler, but his heart was not oriented towards the things of God. And if you know the story of Saul, he got in trouble with God really quick, and it never got better. So God's remedy to human brokenness isn't abandonment, but righteousness. Israel's politics were reconciled with a righteous ruler. And David, who replaced Saul, loves the Lord. And he loved the law of God, God's rules and instructions. And what's instructive for us about that story in Israel's ancient history, 2,800 years ago, actually 3,000 years ago, is that integrity matters. Righteousness matters. Morality matters. God doesn't abandon human institutions because he has not abandoned the world. God has not abandoned the world, but ultimately sent his son, right? Um, And he sends us in his son's name to reconcile the world to himself. We honor God by working for the common good because salvation isn't just for us, but for the life of the world. Now, why do I say that? I want to say that. I say that because I want us to see that involvement in politics, just like involvement in art or medicine, should be seen as a noble and legitimate vocational pursuit for Christians. So this is important for us, right? We don't want to anathematize political involvement because God doesn't teach us that, right? What we learn is that God calls us to engage the world we live in Just like our vocations, our jobs, our families, our neighborhoods, and yes, even politics. So we honor God by working for the common good. Because the common good, right, when Christians engage the world for the common good, it's really for the life of the world. God has called us to be salt 
He's called us to be light because light removes darkness and evil and salt preserves the good from rotting. Mark 5, 13 through 16. So the first thing we should see is that the church has a missional imperative. One reason that politics is so dirty is that we've kind of missed the salt and light imperative for all of life, right? We pay especially a clo close attention to certain things, and we kind of neglect other things. In fact, I would say it's possible that if, um, that if more Christians saw politics as a noble vocational pursuit, that politics maybe wouldn't be as dirty as it is right now. Um, and another reason is that Christian apocalypticism has made many people apathetic about cultural pursuits like politics. And what I mean by that is, if you believe God is going to just destroy it all anyway, um, then what we do here doesn't matter except maybe your private faith. And so you tend to downplay and neglect or outright ignore the church's mission in the world. And what is that mission? Well, that mission is to bring all things into unity into Christ, Ephesians 1.10. As I said before, God's remedy, to evil, uh, God's remedy to evil, whether in politics or otherwise, uh, isn't abandonment, but righteousness, because righteousness matters and integrity matters. I'm setting up the ball on the tee here, all right? We're going to... We're going to hit this ball in a second, but I'm just I'm giving us some background. I'm giving us some context. I'm giving us a pretext of, of what we're going to talk about. And this brings us all to the flip side of this coin, which is that our missional imperative to be salt and light in the world means also that there's a time and place for the church to, have its, to find its prophetic voice. The prophets announced God's displeasure at the people's rejection of his laws and statutes. And the voice of the prophets commanded repentance by pointing to what God values and what he says is right, which means that there is a place for public theology. It means the church, when it comes to matters of politics, does not have to be silent it means that God, in the command for us to be salt and light to the world that we live in, has also given us a prophetic voice to speak the truth, to identify evil, and to proclaim repentance and faith in Jesus Christ in the public arena. Now, that's not always easy, and if you ask me, well, how do you do that? I don't know that I would know exactly how it always unpacks itself, but God certainly has uh, given us that mandate. In fact, you could say that if Jesus was simply preaching that the kingdom of God was simply a matter of private faith, no one would ever have crucified him. But what he proclaimed had such powerful implications for the world, and yes, even for politics. Because to say that Jesus is Lord meant that Caesar was not. That's important. Now, I'm not one of those the sky is falling pessimists. But we have to be honest about where we're at as a nation. And I think our current choice of candidates reflects where we're at as a nation. 
Now, if I had them both sitting in front of me uh, this morning, I would probably say that a little differently, um, but they're not here. <laughs> and they'll probably never listen to this sermon, so I'm just going to go for it. Um, I think we can all agree that our options in this election are downright discouraging. It was Calvin who said that when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And wicked rulers are almost always an indictment against a nation's immorality. Proverbs 13 and 4 says, righteousness exalts a nation. Who knows how that ends, that finishes. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any nation. Now, uh, having said that, I think we can all recognize that unless Jesus is on the ballot, any election forces us to choose the lesser of evils. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But the fact that all humans are sinful doesn't negate our responsibility to our civic duty, nor does our civic duty mean that integrity and the morality of a candidate doesn't matter just because there are no perfect options. This is complex. So if you think you're going to walk away this, this morning with kind of like an ace in the whole answer to what you should do, that's probably not going to happen. This is a complex issue. This is a complex election. And the issues at stake for believers are even more complex. But I'm going to try to shine some light on how we can honor God this election at the ballot box. So how do we do that? How do we honor God this election with um, the two candidates we have? Well, it really all depends on what we think our priority as Christians is. What we think our priority is as the church, and that may be different. So you may feel that you have a, you have a priority as an individual believer that may run up against What's in the best interest of the church overall? And I'll explain that. Um, I read a few articles this week. In fact, for the last several weeks, I've been reading articles and trying to just kind of gather momentum for this sermon and really kind of expose myself to the different voices, um, columnists and theologians and journalists. And so um, I'm going to describe both candidates, and these are not my own words, but words of people in interviews and articles that I've read. And one person in an article says, um, candidate number one is the most pro-choice candidate in America's history. A congenital liar, financially corrupt, and guilty of the self-righteousness that makes healthy self-doubt impossible. She's committed to the ongoing destruction of the family as God defines it, and is so wedded to Wall Street that she cannot govern for the people. Under her, taxes will raise, government will grow, and the Supreme Court will become more liberal. Except for her feminism, she's a raw pragmatist. She will continue Obama's assault on the American system of government by ruling through presidential regulations that supplant the role of Congress. And if she becomes president, Christians will become more and more marginalized in the culture 
and churches will lose their privileged status in American society. On the other hand, someone writes about our set, the second option, that candidate number two boasts of his sexual conquests and regularly makes sexist and racially charged remarks. He owns gambling casinos with in-house strip clubs, meaning he profits from addiction and vice. He's inexperienced and willfully ignorant of foreign policy. Again, these are not my words. He voluntarily repudiates treaties as fundamental as NATO and admires dictators like Vladimir Putin. His domestic positions are sound, but he took the opposite view on almost everything a few years back. So no one really knows what he believes. Beyond all that, he's erratic, belligerent, and too unhinged to control nuclear codes. On more than one occasion, he has gone after Christian leaders who have been hesitant to endorse him. And in a New York Times article by Ross Dothet, he remarks that in spite of all of that, uh, his biggest appeal, candidate number two, is that he seems to be the only way to register dissent against the new liberal orthodoxy that now controls our country. Uh, one candidate seems to threaten the church's cultural position and by extension the privilege that the church has had in America for centuries. And the other threatens the church's testimony and witness to the culture because of his celebration of everything that seems antithetical to biblical morality. Now those are, those are the facts, or those are the opinions, but I mean, there's a lot of truth to those, those two opinions. And that's the landscape right now in front of us. It's not very hopeful. One concern when we look at both of these candidates is utilitarian, right? So utilitarianism is concerned with the consequences of an action. Right? If this person gets in office, here will be the consequences. Now, one prominent theologian uh, writes in an article on the Gospel Coalition website, quote, In biblical ethics, taking scripture as a whole, obedient to God's moral law and the pursuit of godly character, are far more prominent calculations, uh, is a far more prominent than calculation of consequences. Biblical ethics are placed far more, uh, there are far more stresses placed um, on law and character, which are both grounded in God's character. Christians have long probed candidates for signs that they value biblical morals that reflect the character and the wisdom of God. I don't mean that candidates must be examined for genuine faith and obedience, but Christians want leaders who at least unwittingly approximate godly morality. We prefer candidates not to be murderers, liars, or thieves. And he goes on to say that the question is not only how much damage a candidate um, will cause, but which one is more moral in keeping in line with our profession of faith. We should also ask how much damage is being done to the credibility of Christian leaders who have long insisted that character matters, yet have recently reversed themselves with no more rationale than the commonplace assertion all candidates are flawed. That was a mouthful. But essentially, 
what he's saying is that um, morality matters as we think about the consequences of two less than ideal candidates. Because on one hand, we want to limit the consequences of one candidate who might make things really tough for the church um, in the coming decades with policies that may be codified for a very long time, which may never be reversed, right? The consequences. And on the other hand, there is the real threat that our testimony as Christians, in the eyes of the watching world, skeptics and unbelievers in our country, our testimony might be blown right out of the water if we endorse a candidate who is immoral, openly, and unashamed of it. So, what is our duty then as Christians? Do we even have to vote? Well, on one hand, um, Christians have a duty to be salt and light, as we talked about a minute ago. And that means we have a duty um, of, we have the duty of civic engagement, if you will. It's good for us to be involved in civic activities like uh, jury duty or, you know, going to the city council meeting or um, include, yes, I mean, even elections. It's good for us to do that. It's good for us to vote because all of those things are for the common good, right? We don't live in a bubble. We live in the society that God has placed us in. So policies affect us and we have interests as citizens and, yes, as Christians, And beside that, uh, people died for our right to vote. That's part of the privilege in living in a democratic republic. And though God is sovereign over who gets in office, God often uses human means to accomplish his eternal decrees. In other words, God knew from time immemorial who would win this presidential election But God likes to implement things that he knew in eternity past through the uh, process of human involvement. We call that second causes, right? God is pleased to use the means of human agency. Plato said the penalty that good men pay for not being interested in politics is to be governed by men worse than themselves. So... What do we say to all that? Well, there's a flip side to that coin too. Because on the other hand, there is absolutely nothing in Scripture that says Christians have to vote. Now, when I put this in my notes, I thought, when I say certain things, I might, you know, make some people happy and offend other people, you know. And, but as I search Scripture, and I can't, I, I can't say something that Scripture doesn't say, Uh, Scripture does not indicate anywhere, as far as I can see, especially in the New Testament, that there is any obligation to vote or that not voting is a sin. And so to say that not voting is a sin goes beyond Scripture. The most popular New Testament text about a Christian's civic duty is Romans 13. In fact, let me just read that real quick. Read Romans 13 real quick. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So if there is any civic duty in the Bible explicitly, it's to yield and submit to the governing authorities and powers, as long as they don't command you to violate some other area of scripture, pay taxes, and to submit to state power. Um, Philip Schaff, an early uh, Christian historian, said that, um, and he calls attention to the idea, the fact that early Christians in in the Roman Empire disregarded politics and depreciation for all civil affairs in the Roman Empire. And his observation isn't void of merit. He's not saying that this is programmatic, meaning that all Christians should behave exactly like those in the first three centuries, right? Because we know when Constantine got in power, that changed, right? Christianity ultimately, later on with Theodosius, became the state religion. So things did change. But we can see that when we look back through church history, there's nuance, There are times when Christians see it in their best interest to be involved and when Christians are apathetic about involvement in the civic realm. There is both when we look back. And biblically speaking, we have civic duties, but a mandate to vote isn't explicit in Scripture. So, um, I don't know if that sheds light or makes you more confused. But I think what's important is... um, that when we think about where our conscience, you know, finds itself in this election, what convicts your conscience may not convict your neighbor's conscience in terms of how you vote, who you vote for, or if you vote at all. Romans 14.22 says, Keep your belief about such matters between yourself and God, Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. The context is the kosher food laws, right? And after the gospel's entrance, those that wanted to continue to keep kosher or not, and Paul tries to settle the matter and say, look, there is no more mandate, but but this is a matter of your own conscience. Don't bind someone else to your conscience if you're convicted about it, especially if scripture doesn't speak specifically on it. And I would counsel us with the same Uh, wisdom here, that who you vote for, how you vote, or whether you vote is a matter of personal conscience. And I don't think we have a right to condemn uh, or convict someone else or bind someone else to something, to our conscience, right? You can't bind someone else's conscience to something you're convicted about. So having said all that, my biggest concern for us as the church is unity. 
And I don't mean that we need to be united on the issue, but I think we need not to divide over politics, as important as politics is, are, there's an S on there, it's plural, um, as important as politics can be. Um, in fact, if you ask me, I will not tell you who I'm voting for, not because I'm afraid, but because if I'm voting for the same person you're voting for, it's a false grounds of unity. And if I'm not voting for the person you're voting for, it's a false grounds of disunity in the body of Christ. We're united by our common profession of faith in the risen Lord. And this may be one reason why American Christianity um, is divided, because so many Christians on both sides of the political aisle see their religion through the lenses of politics. And I was there one time. I certainly was there at one place in my walk with the Lord where if someone told me they were voting for a certain candidate or a certain political party, I would have probably questioned their faith and just said, I don't see how you can profess the name of the Lord and vote this way or be registered with this political party. But you know something? Um, it's just not that simple. And I think the greater sin, in fact, I know the greater sin in the eyes of the Lord is the disunity over these issues. And so if anything, we ought to be united as the people of God. And the reason is because Jesus defines our, he defies, excuse me, Jesus defies our categories of left and right. He does. If you're liberal, you know, he makes you more conservative. And if you're conservative, Jesus can kind of make you more liberal. And one of the lines of division in American Christianity is that, you know, the religious left care a lot about compassion and justice, and the religious right care a lot about personal uh, moral righteousness, and those things ought not to be separated but united. And we have a really hard do time doing that. And God wants us to be united because both things matter. Now... At the end of the day, you have to decide which vote enables the church's ability to be salt and light. You have to decide what's more important. The church's cultural strength, which may mean more personal comfort, or the lack of personal comfort if one candidate gets elected, or the church's faithful witness to the culture which may mean God is honored and glorified as we witness to an increasingly hostile society. And I think what this boils down to is whether we see our own interests and comforts over the glory um, of Christ's name. All right? So what's more important? And this is something you have to decide. The church's cultural hegemony and power or the fact that a gospel witness... Um, is not predicated on how much political strength the church has. Um, we've had incredible freedoms and comforts in this country. And the church has moved about with almost unhindered um, freedom. And yet, that comfort and those rights we have, in some ways, have made us culturally irrelevant. 
And I mean, at some point, you have to stop and say, how is it that we have churches on every corner, yet our nation continues to slide into atheism and paganism and moral rebellion? How is that possible? How is it that we've had so much cultural strength and power for decades and centuries, there are churches on every corner, we're the most religiously free nation on the planet, and yet, culturally, we only grow more irrelevant by the day. How is that possible? Maybe God wants us to lose power and influence. Maybe it's our cultural hegemony that's caused us to become complacent and our witness ineffective. I don't know. Jason Foster, in an article in the Huffington Post, writes, here's the thing. Christians are never guaranteed control. We're never guaranteed happiness. We are never guaranteed safety. We are owed nothing. What we're guaranteed, according to the Bible, is hatred and real persecution. The Christian life was never meant to be easy. It was never meant to be popular, at least not by the world's standards. Now, maybe the only way to recover the church's faithful witness is to lose our power and political influence. Maybe it isn't until our nation has totally institutionalized its paganism and moral rebellion at the highest levels of government that it will see the bankruptcy and chaos of an entirely immoral social order and hunger for God again. It's a scary thought. But fear should never be the primary motivation of your actions when voting. Trust in God should be. I leave you with this encouragement from 2 Corinthians 4, 8. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be seen also in our mortal bodies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now we pray that the words spoken this morning would unite us around the knowledge and comfort that you reign that every political order, every kingdom that has ever risen and exalted itself above the knowledge of God has been cut down and cut low. Lord, as we look back on history, the different kingdoms and empires, they've come and gone. And Lord, we know that even the early Christians were perplexed when Rome fell. But Lord, you preserve the church because the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And so, Father, I pray now that as we contemplate and consider how we ought to move forward with the, with the information in front of us, Lord, the election and the candidates, Lord, whether we vote 
for one or the other or a third party or not at all. I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to seek your guidance and your direction that we may glorify you in all that we do, that your name may be made famous in all of the earth and that the nations will be glad at the name of Jesus Christ. We pray in your name. Amen.